0: All right, are you ready for the word today? You've already heard some word, but we're going to jump in and share a message with you this morning on on this topic of epiphany. And if I titled it anything, it would actually be epiphany. Epiphany is from the Greek word epiphania, which means manifestation. Now, we use the word in the modern world to mean I had an idea. I get it. So if someone says, I had an epiphany at work today, they typically mean, I figured something out. I know how we ought to handle this transaction. I know where we ought to do whatever it is we're planning on doing. We use it as a light bulb in our culture. That's fine. I don't, I'm not cutting that down, but that's not how the Greek word is to be interpreted. And there's a reason why that matters. On the Christian calendar, we celebrate Epiphany as the moment that God manifests himself to the rest of the world. Because up until Jesus, the manifestation of God, the display of God had been, for the most part, confined to Israel and Judah. We only have one instance in the Old Testament of God specifically telling one of his prophets to even take the message of goodness to a Gentile people. That's Jonah. And Jonah was so shocked and angry about it that he refused because in his mind, the people that are outside of the people of God don't deserve the word of God. Can you imagine if that's how we treated our faith, that only the people of God should receive the goodness of God. I hope you can pick up my sarcasm a little bit because that's exactly how a lot of Christians act about their faith, that only God's people get God's goodness. But the truth is, the beauty of epiphany is to show us that God doesn't play by your rules. So God doesn't like to get hemmed in. He doesn't like to say, I can only bless her. I can only bless him. He's jumped through the hoop. I'll bless him. He paid me off. I'll bless him. God breaks down all of those barriers. Epiphany is the moment where we have a realization that we have a God bigger than we thought we did. That it's not simply away in a manger, Jesus wrapped in swaddling clothes, and a bunch of Jewish people in the first century were looking for him and they found him. Epiphany involves a story that is probably one of the most underappreciated, and in my opinion, misunderstood stories in the entire New Testament. And that's the source of the christmas carol we three kings of orient you know that song well we're not entirely positive they're from the orient we're not at all positive there's only three of them and we have no idea where they were kings from so the song might mislead you in three or four different ways but the subject is the visiting of the wise men these Magi from afar who come to Jesus. And the reason I say it's underappreciated and misunderstood is because it's fantastical that these kings, these wise men, these Magi from a far off distant place would follow a star that finds itself over the crib, the manger bed of a little Jewish boy, maybe hundreds, maybe thousands of miles from their homeland, that they come to worship the God that has been up until this point, the God of Israel. What are these guys doing here? They're not Jewish. They can't trace themselves to Abraham. They've never offered a lamb in a temple. Why do they follow the star all the way to the manger? That alone is a fantastical moment. And that is supposed to inspire 50 questions from us. And in those questions, we're supposed to at least wrestle with why the rest of the world would then turn its eyes on Jesus. And if they did, what does that mean for us today? And what relevance does that have in our life? And so epiphany is really Greek for appearance of the dawn, the appearance of the sun rising. But it's also the manifestation of a deity to a worshiper so that when men worship God, he shows himself. And when he does, that's an epiphany. So we celebrate that moment when the wise men worship the baby Jesus and then have revealed to them the power of God through the life of Christ. So I want to read the story from Matthew chapter two. So go with me if you would to Matthew two. And I want to read a little longer than is normal for me, but I don't want to skip this story of the wise men coming from the East. And I want to point out that all of our nativity scenes, and I don't, I'm not asking you to go home and tear up your nativity scenes, but our nativity scenes that have the wise men at the manger are theologically incorrect. Okay, that doesn't... I just told you all ago, we're not losing our minds over getting some theology wrong. We believe on Jesus. So, again, don't go home and, and pull a Clark Griswold and start kicking the, you know, the manger scene out in the front yard. <laughs> but... Just know that the wise men were not at the manger. They were not in the stable. The journey of the wise men actually happens at least after the circumcision of Jesus. When he circumcised at eight days old, our reading this morning had the the receiving of the baby Jesus at his circumcision. And you remember in that reading, his mom brings a pigeon and a turtle dove as a sacrifice. That's what the poor people brought to the temple. If you were wealthy, you brought a bull. You were a little bit lower down the strat, stratosphere to a, a stratum of economics. You brought a goat, a lamb, pigeons and turtle doves. Jesus's parents bring pigeons and turtle doves because they don't have much. Now, when the wise men show up, they bring gold, frankincense and myrrh. If the wise men had already been there, it's no longer legal for Mary to bring pigeons and turtle doves. If you've got gold, frankincense and myrrh in the storage house, you probably should have brought a bull. You get, get the point. And so the. The object then becomes taking us past the circumcision of Jesus all the way up to the arrival of wise men. Let's read that story from Matthew chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. When he had gathered all the chief priests and scribes of the people together, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. So they said to him in Bethlehem of Judea, for thus it is written by the prophet. Notice verse 6 is all a quote. But you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are not the least among the rulers of Judah, for out of you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. This is a direct quote from Micah chapter 5, verse 2, Old Testament prophecy of where Jesus would be born. Verse 7, Then Herod, when he had secretly called the wise men, determined from them what time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go search carefully for the young child, and when you found him, bring him back word to me that I may come and worship him also. And when they heard the king, they departed, and behold, the star which they had seen in the east went before them till it came and stood over where the young child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And when they had come into the house, notice we're in a house, not a stable, they saw the young child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. And when they opened their treasures, they presented gifts to him, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Notice gold, frankincense, and myrrh. One, two, three. This is where we come up with three kings, three wise men. It never says there's only three. There could be 300. So, but they bring three distinct kinds of gifts. Then being divinely warned in a dream that they should not return to Herod, they departed for their own country another way. The reason I told you this is underrated and shocking is because we have tamped down who these guys are by using the big English word wise men. This is not the word that is used in the Greek for who these guys are. The Greek word is magii, magiai, M-A-G-A-I, whereby we derive the short form magi. But even magi don't mean much to us. What happens if you take the word magi and stick a C at the end of it? What do you get? Bingo. Magicians. Astrologers from the east. Probably Zoroastrianism is their religion. They read the stars and they notice something unusual and they follow the unusual thing. And they figure that only God can put something unusual up there and cause it to move. And so in moving along with the star, they find themselves at a baby they know where they're going they've at least read something about this child and they maybe they've read the timelines of daniel that prophesy of when he would be born and they figure they're in the right part of the world because they've read the ancient texts and they go to the only person they think will know where jesus is if you want to know where the son of god's being born go to the top dog right go all the way to king herod because surely king herod could tell us where the baby's being born the first indication That things don't work in the kingdom of God the way they work in the kingdom of the world is the fact that Herod knows nothing about the baby being born because the kingdom of God doesn't inform the wise of the world first. It informs shepherds on a hill. And then Jesus lives his life that way to where the people that get it are never the people you expect to get it and the people that don't get it you would think would get it. Chief priests, scribes, Pharisees, they don't get it. Strangers, prostitutes, outcasts, Gentiles, they get it. (laughs) To this day, the church functions at its best that way. Where the powers of the world don't understand what you're doing, and the dregs of society can't get enough of it. The outcasts and the strangers and the hopeless and the poor and the hurting and the dying and the wounded, they can't get enough of it. The outcasts of the world can't get enough of it. And then the tops of the world go, what are those weirdos doing? That's fine that's a pretty good place to be. And so they go to Herod thinking Herod will know. Herod has no idea, but Herod wants in on it because if there's a king born, I need to do something about this. This is a threat to my power base. And so Herod says, well, when you find him, let me know I'll come worship him as well. And you know the story. They're visited, and we just read it, they're visited in a dream by an angel that says, don't lead Herod here. And even though they don't lead Herod there, Herod still kills every baby born in the last two years inside of Bethlehem, inside of Judea in an attempt to kill this baby that he thinks is a threat to him. So underrated story, not only underrated, but amazing that God shows the Magi from the east who don't know him the way to the star and then continues to speak to them afterwards. And they're not sticking around offering sacrifices in the temple. They're going back home, back to their lives, back to their lifestyles. And yet God still speaks to them and through them. And if I could just throw in one quick good principle that you can grab right here early in the message, it is this. Don't tell God who he gets to reveal himself to. Don't assume that God is going to move the way you think he's going to move. He's going to talk the way you think he's going to talk. And he's only going to reveal himself to your kind. Because this is a very dangerous thing we do in church sometimes is we feel like we've found truth. God's really going to move in our midst. He's probably not going to move over there at that church. He's probably not going to reveal himself down there at that church or whatever's going on down there in that building. He's going to reveal himself here where we've discovered truth. And I love the story of the wise men because it's God going, don't assume that you ever know what I'm going to do. And don't assume you're the only people that know how to listen to me or the only people that know how to follow me. And this is encouraging to me because I come up in Christian environments where I thought if you were going to hear from God, you had to pay this really lofty price. And live in a certain way, and that way God would speak to you. But what I have found is that God has never waited on me to live a certain way in order to talk to me. He just waited on me to listen. Now, if I'll listen, that might affect the way I live, that's for sure. It might affect the way I walk, but it's not a prerequisite in order for God to do something to me. I want you to note where we are in the story, and I want you to note who these men are. They are not Jews, they are Gentiles. And the revelation of Jesus as a king to a bunch of non-Gentiles stands outside the narrative flow of the Bible, but not the flow of Bible prophecy. And what I mean by that is we don't have Gentiles observing God as the one Lord, but we do have the prophetic voice in the Bible that occasionally reaches out and grabs the Gentiles, like the Jonas of the world that go to Nineveh. Eventually, even though he runs at first, he eventually goes. We do have the prophetic voices that reach out to those Gentile worlds and speak to them. Look at Isaiah chapter 60 in the Old Testament. I want to show you one of those prophetic moments. In Isaiah chapter 60, verse 1, Arise, shine, for your light has come. The glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and deep darkness the people but the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. What did I tell you about Epiphany? Epiphania is actually the appearance of the dawn. It's the rising of the sun. The Lord will rise over you. Verse 3, the Gentiles shall come to your light and kings to the brightness of your rising. So Isaiah chapter 60 verse 3 says that the day is going to come that Gentiles will come running to Jesus. It doesn't say Jesus, but whoever it is that rises up on the scene. They're going to come running to him and the kings are going to do the same. And so our story of the wise men or the kings or the magi is a direct fulfillment of the Isaiah 60 prophecy prophecy that this would occur. But that's not alone. That's not it. It's, It's incredible to me that the prophetic voice of the Old Testament not only anticipates the arrival of Jesus, not only anticipates that Gentiles will want it, it shows us the heart of God, that God's heart was never to simply be inside of one people. God always wanted His love to overflow the boundaries of national borders and religious borders and race borders and speak into hearts. For instance, listen to Isaiah 49 and verse 6, where God says this. This is one of my favorite Old Testament prophecies. Isaiah 49, 6, God says, It's too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and restore the preserved ones of Israel. I'll also give you as a light to the Gentiles, that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. Let me say that in layman's terms. It's too small of a thing that you're only the Savior to Israel. Instead, I'm going to raise you up as a light to the Gentiles. This is Isaiah 49. God's saying it's not a big enough deal. If I only save my own people, I want to save all of the people. I want to make Jesus a big deal. It's God saying he's not a big enough deal. I know I'm putting words in that God didn't talk like this, but that's okay. We're made in his image. So he's going to, today he's going to talk like this. All right. And this is what he sounds like. It's my son is too big of a deal to only save his own family. He's such a big deal. He's going to invite all the families in. That's a big deal. Little deal, I save my own people. This is the fascinating thing. Most of this Old Testament, this is all of this. Most of this is one people. And then right up near the end, God goes, my son's too big of a deal for just one people. I... I'm going to get all of them. When I, when I step into the timeline, this is God putting on a human suit and steps into the timeline as Jesus. He goes, when I step in, I'm too big of a deal to be confined in one family. So I'm going to throw the doors wide open. And this is why Jesus is considered blasphemous when he shows up because he knows the heart of his father. Jesus says, I'm what dad looks like. Jesus comes loving everyone. He's not putting up performance standards on anyone. He just loves you. It doesn't mean he approves of what you're doing, but he approves of you. In a world in which people were defined by what they do, Jesus came to love people for who they are. And that got him in a lot of trouble because in the religious world, we build fences around performance. And how you act and what you do, and that makes you approved. And Jesus came along and said, My Father loves you. And pushes down the fences and pushes down the walls. And when confronted with people in the midst of their sin and their pain, He forgave them and He loved them and He released them from condemnation. They lower a young man into a a room with Jesus. They tear the roof off and drop a paralytic man into the room with Jesus. And Jesus' first response is not, how dare you guys interrupt our church service with this roof-tearing business. (laughs) Remember, like I told you earlier, we're not building some slick professionalism point by point here. We're, We're letting the room come to us. We're just letting what happens, happens. And Jesus watches as they lower the young man down. And he doesn't walk over and say, son get up, you're healed. Instead, he says, son, your sins are forgiven you. And everybody in the room loses their mind because Jesus gives this guy forgiveness of sins. He didn't confess his sins. He didn't ask for forgiveness. He didn't offer a blood sacrifice. He just lays there like a slug and Jesus goes, son, your sins are forgiven. Welcome to Epiphany, the love of God that overflows the borders. And after the young man receives his forgiveness, Jesus says, rise, take up your bed and walk. Because every now and then in life, the thing that's holding you back is your own guilt of what you've done. And if you could just receive the love of God and the forgiveness of God, you might even get over the thing that's tripping you up the most. And one time they bring a woman caught in the act of adultery to Jesus. And they throw her at His feet and they have rocks in their hands ready to hit her in the head and kill her because the law lets them do that to people caught committing adultery. And they say to Jesus, Moses says we should stone her to death. What do you say? And Jesus doodles in the sand because some answers are too big for you to give quickly. You need to take your time and doodle in the sand and make sure you're hearing from God. Don't spout off at the mouth before you've spent a little time alone with the Father. And so Jesus reaches down and doodles in the sand and looks back up and says, He without sin among you, you go ahead and kill her. I give you permission. If you haven't done anything wrong, you get to be the person that cracks her skull first goes right back down to drawing in the sand. And everyone from the oldest to the youngest drop their rocks and walk away. And Jesus says, woman, where are your accusers? And she says, no one has condemned me. And he says, well, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Because the strength to live a life free from the trappings that got you in trouble in the first place is the knowledge that you are not condemned in your failure. And the ability to go live free in this world and realize that you can make mistakes and He still loves you is the the knowledge that God so loved the world He gave His Son. He gave His Son. He just handed Him to you to do with it as you will. I like to say God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it, but I've added something to it lately. God loves you and there's nothing you can do about it, but there is something you can do with it. So choose it because if you don't want it and you reject it, he still loves you, but you don't get to walk in that beauty. You're going to carry a lot of your own baggage around because you refuse the love of God. But what you could do with it is receive it because it's so powerful and so passionate. It could be yours. It can, you can have it and you can hold it and you can rest in it. And it doesn't mean a life free of pain and it doesn't mean a life free of failure. And it doesn't mean a life free of hurt, but it means... The knowledge that he never leaves me or forsakes me. That he loves me in spite of everything that goes on in my life. That he's here and that his love is real for me. So Jesus is too big to be confined. Let me, let me take a sidestep here for just a second. Because this really struck me as I was putting this together this week. Why magi? Like, he could have just revealed it to Gentiles. But he goes way outside to magi. Essentially, not only are they not Jews, they're they're living in a way that most Jewish people would consider blasphemous, okay? And most Christians as well, even today. Why would God choose to allow Magi to be the first Gentiles to get a glimpse of the baby Jesus and go out and actually spare his life? Because if they go straight to Herod, Herod's going to go straight to the house and kill that baby. I mean, We actually owe a bunch of magi from the east. We actually owe them a debt of gratitude that they don't do what they were told to do and report the house to Herod. Because Herod walks in there, and, and of course all of this is destined and designed by the Father. He's got his hand on this. But that leads me to question, how could God have his hand on this? How could God approve of this action? I don't understand the star business. Okay, I'm just going to tell you. You can watch a, you can you can listen to Bible scholars and a lot of astronomers, and there's ten thousand YouTube videos on it on why there was a star and did it actually move across the heavens and were they actually looking at a real star? Were they looking at some you know a comet? What was it going on? I'm being frank with you. I don't even care. Like it's never been a real concern of mine. Like how did this happen and was there a real star? The the points of the story is not for me to line up what was happening astronomically in the first century over the Middle East. The point of the story is way deeper than that. That's just superficial. That's you just scratching a natural itch. I got a much deeper itch spiritually to find out where this star business even come from. And what's shocking to me is there's an Old Testament prophecy of a star being born in the land of Judah. And would you know that the prophet is not Jewish? Let me read it to you. Numbers chapter 24, verse 17. How many of you have ever heard of Balaam? Okay, here's a quick little Sunday school review. Balaam, the children of Israel are going through the land in which Balak is king, land of Moab. Balak the king hates Israel coming through his property, but he can't beat them. They're too big for him. So he hires a prophet named Balaam to stand on a hill. This is a crazy story, all right? He hires Balaam to stand on a hill and look at God's people down in a valley and raise his hands and curse them. I read this and think "This this is nuts like this is going to matter to the people of God. And that's part of the comic relief of the story is Balaam tries and he can't open his mouth. And when he does open it, he blesses him. And Balak goes, I paid you to curse them and you bless them. And he goes, I can't curse what God has blessed, which is amazing biblical maxim, which, if, which means if God's got his hand on you, quit worrying about everything else because if God's blessed you, nothing else can curse you. You can mock the rest of it. This is the famous story of the donkey that talks. Balaam's on his way to go curse the people of God and an angel stands in his way and won't let him pass and the donkey sees it, but he don't because the donkey has eyes in the spirit that Balaam doesn't have. And you know, he hits his donkey with a stick. Go on and the donkey won't move. You know the story. Okay, I got you up to speed. So Balaam has tried and tried to curse the people of God. And finally, he just gives up. And he speaks this big, long blessing over them. Listen to Numbers chapter 24, one verse, verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob. A scepter shall rise out of Israel and batter the brow of Moab and destroy all the sons of Tumult. And there's your Old Testament prophecy of a star over Judah. And guess who gave it? A Gentile soothsayer. And amazingly, a bunch of Gentile soothsayers take that prophecy in the first century. And they go, we're looking for that star that one Balaam told us about. And they find it. And it's remarkable to me because this reminds me very much of Paul standing in the Agropolis in Athens. And he's looking at all of the Greek statues. There's Zeus and there's, 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 we don't know what all, I don't know what all was there. They're not still standing. But there was lines of Greek gods. And there's another statue in this story, you can read this at home, it's in Acts 17. There's another statue with a little placard that says to the unknown God. And Paul, the great apostle Paul goes, hey, let me tell you about this one, the unknown one, the one you built a statue to, but you don't know. He goes, he's not very far away from you. In him, you live and breathe and move and have your being. And in him, we are all the offspring of God. And incredibly, Paul doesn't say, you idiots. Why'd you build a statue to the unknown God? Instead, he goes, I'll help name him for you. And he doesn't say, you guys are miles away from God. Instead, he says, you're so close to him, you don't even realize it. Your very life, your very breath, your very heart beats because of that God. And he rose, Paul says this, and he rose from the dead. And they all mock him and laugh because Paul's just crossed the threshold into insane Christianity that believes Jesus is alive, right? The, The one that I'm unashamed to tell you I believe is alive. And Paul crosses that threshold and goes, hey, I'm not just here to introduce you to God. I'm here to show you about a resurrected Jesus. Since we're his offspring, he says, we should look at his offspring who resurrected from the dead. And so Christ, the resurrected Christ, becomes the epiphany. He becomes the revelation of the unknown God to all of us Greeks, all of us Gentiles. Christ becomes the very heartbeat of who God is. If you want to know if God loves you, you look at Jesus. You want to know what God thinks of you, you look at Jesus. He becomes the way. I want to read for you a quote, a Martin Luther quote. This is perfect for this moment, and we're going to land on a couple scriptures. Martin Luther said this, it's because of his humanity and His Incarnation that Christ becomes sweet to us. And through Christ, God becomes sweet to us. Let us therefore begin to ascend step by step from Christ's crying in His swaddling clothes up to His passion. Then we shall easily know God. I'm saying this so that you do not begin to contemplate God from the top, but start with the weak elements We should busy ourselves completely with treating, knowing, and considering this man. Then you will know that he is the way, the truth, and the life. What Luther is saying is it's easy to start at the end of his life. It's easy to start at the cross and the resurrection and think you can meet Christ. But start with the baby and work your way to the cross. Because as you watch him work, you get to see the heart of God. This is why we don't skip the life of Jesus. This is very dangerous if we skip the life of Jesus. Because if we skip the life of Jesus, we miss how God would act in a human body on the earth. And you can have all kinds of theories about God. But if they don't look like Jesus, to me, they're worthless. Because Jesus steps into the ether to say, this is what dad looks like. Luther quotes John fourteen six right there at the end. The way, the truth, the life. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no man comes to the Father but by me. A lot of people use that as a heaven verse. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life. If you wanna to go to heaven, Jesus is the only way to go to heaven. Okay, I'm not gonna argue with you about that. But that's a misusage of scripture. That's a misuse of that verse. Jesus doesn't say, I'm the way, the truth and the life and no man gets to heaven by me. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth and the life and no man knows God as their father, except by me. So there's a lot of people that know God But to know God as your father is to know that you're his son and you're his daughter. And the only way you're going to know that is through Jesus. Christ shows you what the sons of God live like. Shows you what the sons of God love like. The manifestation of God to the Gentile world is Jesus. When Jesus heals the Syrophoenician woman's child, that's a Gentile. When Jesus heals the centurion's servant, that's a Gentile. In all of these moments, it's Jesus saying it was never just about a single people. It was about every person. And I want to make sure you know that it's about you too. One more verse, 2 Timothy chapter 1. Because I want to show you that epiphany is not something just in your past, okay? Epiphany is something in your present and it's something in your future. 2 Timothy chapter 1 verse 8, Paul says, Do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share with me in the sufferings for the gospel according to the power of God, who has saved us and called us with a holy calling, not according to our works, but according to his own purpose and grace, which was given to us in Christ Jesus before time began, but has now been revealed by the epiphania, of our Savior Jesus. No, the English there is appearing. But that's epiphany. This is Paul using that word. It's Paul saying, it's now been revealed to us by the epiphany of who God is through Jesus Christ who abolished death and brought life and immortality to life through the gospel. So good news, Jesus has abolished the death that that man had experienced in being distanced from God. We all still die but we don't have to experience the death of the spirit. Jesus has stepped into that and we step into the fullness of who God is for us. So what do we get to do with this every day? We get to have revealed to us who Jesus Christ is through the immortal life of God. So the invitation that we give as Christians to people to come follow Christ is not an invitation. As far as I'm concerned, it's not an invitation that has much to do with life after death. Death has been abolished. Death, spiritual death, has been abolished. Christ has already conquered your spiritual death. What He's inviting you to do is step into His life. He's inviting you to step into the fullness of knowing His Father loves you. The fullness of knowing that you bring who you really are to Him. And the invitation is always to bring who you really are to God so that you can receive who He really is. And this is why i encourage you to be yourself you say who else could i be we try we try every day to be somebody else to be something else to be something more than we are or less than we are bringing the whole truth to god lays the whole truth of who we are before god because god brought the whole truth of who he is to us he hasn't hidden anything here's the beautiful assurance god hasn't gotten to heaven and changed his mind and went now i'm going to come back but i'm not going to look like i did when i came the first time I'm going to be a bloodthirsty killer, and I'm going to knock out half the world. If that's your version of Jesus coming back, I'm sorry. I'm not going to get on board with that. Jesus has to be, the Jesus that comes back looks like the Jesus that left. He's, he's God that never changes. And the Jesus that will make an appearance in your life looks exactly like the Jesus that told the woman with, caught in the act of adultery, neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. That's the Jesus that says to you, neither do I condemn you. Now go take that equipment and go live the life of God. Because it's a life worth living. I told you guys earlier that we're just a, bunch of, just a bunch of ragamuffins sitting around the table of God enjoying Jesus. I mean that. Just a bunch of people sitting around the table of the Lord enjoying the Christ we see in each other for a little slice of our life. Just a little slice of our week in a world full of an onslaught of hustle and bustle. Get to come into this space, take a deep breath, and see Jesus. And then let Jesus go into the roots of this garden. And, and we soak up the love of God. Not as someone who's hoarding it, because we're afraid we don't get enough of it. But as someone who takes as much as we can get so that it, it comes out in us as we live our lives this week. That it leaks out to our neighbor. That we realize that there is a way we can love our enemy. There is a way we can pray for our persecutor. Because we're so saturated in the love of Jesus. It's why we work really hard in this space to eliminate a lot of the outside stuff when you're in this room. I don't get up here and talk to you about politics and sports and economies and candidates. I talk to you about Jesus. You can get all that other stuff elsewhere, but in here you soak up Jesus, so much so that he, he leaks out in the way that you treat your neighbor. You are the walking chance for epiphany for the world. You are the manifestation of God. Jesus said, by this they shall know that you are my disciples. Not that you have great moral code or you vote a certain way or you live on this side of th- Because they'll know you're my disciples because you love. Because it's so obvious in the way that you love, they'll go, these people must follow Jesus because only Jesus could love like that. Would you bow your heads with me for a second? And take another deep spiritual breath and soak in the love of the Father. I want you to know you are loved today. Soak in the love of the Father for you. Father, thank you for such a beautiful opportunity today to share the good news. Thank you for a space like the Garden Church where we can come as we are and meet you just as you are where we can have the roots of our lives washed off with the water of the word. Where, Father, we don't, we don't come in here and hear a word that says, go do exactly what you did this week. We come and hear a word that says God loves you, regardless of what you've done this week. Receive the love of God so that your next week can be saturated in that love. And I pray that's what you do in me today, Father. Father. And I praise what you do in this place today, Father, as we confess our sin, as we receive our Savior, and as we walk in the Holy Spirit, we confess who we are to receive who you are so that we can live that out in Jesus' name, amen.